here is a, a dream. A, one of those odd nightmares. You know, it's not, not like Boogeyman or anything like that. One of, the, one of those recurring nightmares. And it's got to mean something because I know that I'm not the only one that has this dream. I've talked with a lot of other people and, and it's, it's kind of a common thing. And I don't know what it means and I'm not even going to chase what it means. But here's the dream. College, it's, it's finals week. Getting ready to, to go after and, and do these finals and there's this one final on my schedule. It's a final that I, I look at it, I realize... I don't know where this class is. In, in fact, I think I remember signing up for this class and maybe going on the first day of the semester, but I haven't been back to this class since then. And I've got this final that I'm supposed to go and take, and I have no idea where it's even supposed to be, and I know that if I somehow find it, I don't know anything that they're talking about, and, and, and there's this weird kind of panic that happens that, that I'm not ready for what's coming. And then I wake up and I go, what a nerd I am, but that's the nightmare I'm having. But then I talk to other people and they have it too. So at least as a nerd, I'm not a nerd all by myself. So, okay. But it, there's, there's, this, there's this helpless feeling in there of not being ready when the moment arrives. And if you haven't had that dream, that's great. But I'm sure we can all understand that feeling. That feeling that, that the moment is here, and what if I'm not ready for it? What, what if I haven't prepared for it at all? Or maybe I have prepared it, and maybe it's not enough. And there's some of that fear going on. We've started looking at the book of Nehemiah looking at, at the vision that God has, has put in Nehemiah's heart, where he hears about the, the tragic state of Jerusalem, the way the, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, the people are living in disgrace, and, and Jeremiah is just broken down over this. And we saw that God started working that brokenness, this vision of what Nehemiah was supposed to do. And I asked when we, when we were there and thinking about that, what is that thing for you? What is that thing that breaks you down? What is that, that injustice that, that you look and say, no, that's not right? That, that desire, that call that says something should be done here, those things that keep you up at night, saying we've got to do something about this. What is that for you? As we continued through that first chapter of Nehemiah, we saw that his first step in all of this was to pray. He said he continued fasting and praying and he, he fell on his face before God and he looked at God and, and the majesty and glory of who he is and, and reflected on that. And f in seeing that, he saw his own brokenness and sinfulness and he confessed on behalf of himself, on behalf of his people, he confessed. And then he recounted scripture to God and said, remember how you spoke to your servant Moses and, and told him that even though it, the people may be scattered, if they turn back to you, you'll bring them. He, he recounted God's word to him. And so he, he presented his request. Let me 
have success before this man as he goes before the king. And that whole first chapter rounded out with that one little line that said, I was cupbearer to the king. That we see that, that God has already been working in Nehemiah's life to put him in a place where something can happen. Now we come into chapter 2. And we see God working through Nehemiah. We see Nehemiah working to prepare this vision and, and what that looks like as he comes. So today we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll do verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me and the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. As Nehemiah is, is in this time of preparing, we see it's a time of waiting, a time of praying, and a time of preparation, of planning. So let's look at, at what we see here as Nehemiah kind of walks through his time here. As he's waiting, praying, and preparing. You see, remember chapter 1 ended with, with this prayer and then this, this announcement. It's kind of quick bit of information. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. And then chapter 2 starts out in the month of Nisan, 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him. So we see that, that Nehemiah had a job to do, and as we start chapter 2, we see him going about doing his job. What we might miss as we look in there, because we are not familiar with these funny-sounding months. We hear about the month of Nisan, and we think that I think of cars driving around, little foreign cars, and, and that doesn't help us out at all if we're thinking here. So where the whole thing started out back at the beginning of chapter 1 where it said it was in the month of Kislev. Kislev, on, on the Hebrew calendar there, would land about November, December-ish. We're, we're looking wintertime, November, December. By the time we get to the month of Nisan, this is like March or April. It's actually the beginning of their new year. 
So from November, December, all the way till March or April, we've got nothing in this story. It's important for us to remember that because it's easy to just kind of read right through and just get our, our things there. But if we stop and think about what Nehemiah is going through, here's four months where he's praying. Four months where he is asking God to do a big thing. Four months where he seems to not be getting any sort of answers. Nehemiah is waiting. He is spending time waiting. He's spending four months of praying and fasting. We don't see that in there, do we? If, if, this, were, if this were a TV show we were watching, we'd come back from commercial, there'd be this black screen that says four months later, and then we'd get him here serving the king his wine. It kind of invites us carefully to fill in what might have been going on. Now, we don't want to just fill that with anything. But if we look back at chapter 1, he had said that I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If this was Nehemiah's response when he heard this news and he said he continued doing this thing, I think we can rightly say that through these four months, he is continuing to fast and pray. He is continuing to go before God. He is continuing to think about his brothers and sisters whom he has never met back in Jerusalem. He continues to think about the wall and how it's broken down and the gates are burned with fire. He continues to think about how all the people around can look at Jerusalem and say, where is their God? He continues to think about this stuff and it continues to rip him up. And he lays it out before God. Saying, God, something's got to be done about this. There is this time of withdrawal to pull back, to spend time in prayer. We see Jesus doing it all the time in the Gospels. Where it says he'll go up on a mountain by himself to pray. He'll spend the night there while the disciples are getting in a boat or while the disciples are doing other things. He goes off by himself and just gets away from everything to pray. But there's also this rhythm of that withdrawal and focused time just being with God and a time of engaging and working. Chapter 1 ended, I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2 begins, there's this going on, and wine was before the king, and I brought him his cup. We see that even in his time of prayer, even in his time of fasting, of going before God and begging on behalf of God's people, he continues to be faithful in what's before him as well. He has his time to withdraw and to pray, and his time to engage and to work, and in both of those, he is honoring God who has put him in that place. We can, we can sometimes get into the idea that, well, if you're going to be super spiritual, then, then you just spend all your time reading the Bible and praying, and that's all you ever do. Because those are, those are the God things that we do. And so you spend your time there, but you don't, you don't mess around with, with the things of this world. Why, why would we want to to go to our, our job and just cook meals? Why would we want to go to our job and, and plow fields? Why would we want to go to our job and, and, 
and build things when, when there are great things we can do like read the Bible and pray. And God says, no, I have you where you are for a reason. Nehemiah doesn't spend his time in prayer and ignore everything else. If anything, I'm thinking that his time in prayer is probably enhancing the work that he does. It's a side note, and, and I'm not going to spend much time on it here, but we, it, it'll be good to, to focus on this a little bit later, but your work matters. The things you do, they matter. God is glorified in you giving your best where He has you. God has put you where He has you for a reason. And it's not just the menial tasks to do the godly things later. Or, or trying to just make some money so we can give money to people who go and do godly things. We support our missionaries. God has you where He wants you for a reason. Your work matters. You are His light in that place. The work that you do, giving your best at it, it is a godly thing. Nehemiah had to wait. Four months he spends in this rhythm of, of working, doing his job, fulfilling his duties, caring for the king, and then coming away and, and, and withdrawing and praying and seeking God. And he's going and going and going. And Nehemiah, remember, as a man who has climbed to this esteemed position in the, the king's cabinet there, if you will, is a guy who knows how to get things done. And when he prayed, he, his prayer was, now grant success to your servant today. Right there at the end of chapter 1. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I think if Nehemiah had his way, he meant today. God, let's do something about this and let's do it right now. He's a guy who knows how to get things done. Let's do this. And God's got him in this holding pattern, this waiting time, this four months of not seeing anything happen. I think maybe for the first week or so, Nehemiah was like, all right, all right, God's getting things ready. Week two, month one. All right, now he's starting to get crazy, maybe a little bit cranky. God, are you not hearing me? And God just keeps Making him wait. Making him slow down. Making him hold to wait on God's timing. I wonder if Nehemiah would have looked back through Scripture to take solace in, in other people that had to wait. As he looks at Abraham who gets this promise from God that you will be the father of many nations and Abraham's like, that's great. And then he goes decades with no children at all. And he had to wait. Joseph, who gets this dream that, that his brothers and, and father and mother and everybody is going to bow down to him as he cares for all of them. And then he gets beat up by his brothers, tossed into a pit, sold into slavery, in jail in Egypt. And Joseph's got to wait. 
I wonder if he looked at Moses. Who was miraculously saved and brought into the household of Pharaoh as Pharaoh was killing all of his peers. And one day as Moses was out walking, he sees a Hebrew being abused by an Egyptian and, and there's that holy discontent and he says, this injustice is not right. God's people are being mistreated. There's like this vision that there's something needs to be done about this. And Moses acts and he kills the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand and then finds that that didn't work so well and he's on wanted posters all over the Egyptian post office and he's got to go. And spends 40 years in the desert waiting when his action didn't quite work out like he thought it was going to. So Nehemiah, with this God-given vision to, to see something great happen in Jerusalem, is forced to slow down, to hit the brakes and wait. Because he's waiting on God's timing. Not on his own. But the interesting thing is, he's waiting on God's timing. He's, he's not allowed by God to go and do something now. But when that time comes, when God says, today's the day, let's go do this, Nehemiah needs to be ready. See, he's not just waiting idly. There is something that's happening. And, and there's this reminder, Raymond Brown writes, that waiting time is not wasted time. As God gives Nehemiah this vision, says, this is what we're going to be looking at. This is the good that's going to happen. And then he puts a hold on him and he makes him wait. That time of waiting is never wasted. God's doing something with it. And then finally that day comes. Verse 2 of chapter 2, that day comes. See, the wine has been brought before the king. Nehemiah is doing his job. He is executing his job with excellence. He is bringing the wine before the king. He is caring for the king. But he said he had not been sad in the king's presence before. So apparently on this day when he brings the wine, he is sad. I don't know why. Whether he had chosen this day somehow, whether he had just been in prayer and, and just ripped up over what's going on in Jerusalem. And, and then all of a sudden he hears a call, whoa, there, there's something happening. We've got we to move now. And he's like, not even ready for it. But for whatever reason it is, Nehemiah on this day comes before the king's presence and he's sad. Now, let's think about this. Cupbearer to the king, right? What's that guy do? He, I mean, he's close. He's powerful. This guy is important. But his, his job is to bring the wine before the king, right? To check the wine, make sure the wine is not poisoned, so that the king does not get poisoned. If, if the wine is poisoned, the cupbearer dies, long live the king. He, he's got a lot of perks with this job, but he's got some, some risk with this job too. So if this guy comes before the king and his face is all looking all... Uh, king's a wise man to be like, dude, what's up? I, I haven't seen you like this before. You're not sick. So the, this has to be something else. What's going on? Because, you know, maybe somebody got to the cupbearer and he's like, oh, okay, here it is. 
I'm going to die with a slow-acting poison. King's, no. So the king asks the question, rightly so. Why are you sad? Why is your face like this? What's going on? What's it say right there at the end of verse 2? Any of you that have it open? Sadness of the heart, that he was deeply troubled. Yeah. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He's coming before the king. He is not to be in the king's presence in this sort of demeanor. And all of a sudden the king's like, what's going on? And he was very much afraid. We can get with that, right? Because, I mean, one, kings of major empires like this are not known to be, you know, really forgiving with people who are trying to kill them. And that's maybe what this looks like. And so he comes and he says, what is this? And, and Nehemiah is very much afraid because this is the time. This is that moment. This is the thing that he has been praying about for so long. This is the thing that has been just tearing him up for so long. This is, a, this is the moment that he's been dreaming about, talking to people about, trying to figure out how this is going to work. This is the time that he's been pr praying for and planning for and waiting for. This is that moment. Is he ready? He's got to be looking at this and, and saying, the next words out of my mouth can affect a whole nation back home. Am I ready for this? So taking a deep breath, he says, why shouldn't I be sad? He lets him know what's going on. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? The gates have been destroyed by fire. He goes ahead and he lays it out there. This is what's been happening, king. This is why my face is sad. This is what's going on with my people. And now we're at this tipping point. What happens next? Does the king say, well, that's utter foolishness, go and get me some more wine, and end it all right there? But no, by God's grace. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? He asks him. He, he sees that something is wrong, Nehemiah tells him what's wrong, and the king, by God's grace, is open to hearing about it. What do you want? Make your request. And here, the stakes have just gone up. Now Nehemiah realizes that not only is, is the king willing to listen, but now it looks like he's willing to act as well. And there's that little line there. At the end of verse 4, I prayed to the God of heaven. The king makes that request to him. So, so what is it that you want? What should we do about this? And probably the space of a breath. Nehemiah goes before God. 
in this moment, he knows that it can't just be about what is in his own mind, what, what his cunning and cleverness can come up with. It can't just be about what he wants and what he can do. In this moment before this king, this powerful king who has conquered nations, Nehemiah knows that first before he talks to this guy, who he has rightly said in his prayer before, grant success before this man. He's just a man. Nehemiah's got to first talk to the Most High King. And so he prays. This is probably not the long prayer that Nehemiah had before. Like I said, this probably happened in the space of a breath. But in the space of that breath, Nehemiah goes before the God of the universe, the one who gave him the vision in the first place. I said, God, this is it. This is the moment I need you. Let, let the words that come out of my mouth be your words. Let the ears that the king uses to hear it, let, let them be filtered with your grace. Nehemiah probably threw days worth of prayer into that much time in one of those heart cries that the Spirit understands. And as this is Nehemiah's reaction to first go before the Lord in prayer, we see several things about prayer in his life. We see the necessity of prayer. We see that as the king is open to this idea and asks, what are you requesting? Nehemiah knows that this can't just be about him. He knows that he needs to go before God in this. He needs to be in prayer right now. We see the immediacy of prayer. That it can happen right there in that instant. That, that as soon as that question is asked, Nehemiah doesn't have to say, that's a very good question. Excuse me, I'm going to go off to, to my prayer room. I'm going to get in my prayer posture. And I'm going to spend some prayer time. And then I'll come back to you and we'll, we'll hash this out. No, God is immediately present. He is there. And in that moment, Nehemiah goes before him with his requests. To God first, not to the king. We see the natural nature of prayer in Nehemiah's life. This prayer that happens in a moment is birthed out of four months of going before God in prayer, of seeking God in prayer, of pouring out his heart before God in prayer, of trying to hear God's heart in prayer, spending all that time in prayer and seeking God makes that a part of his life that is so natural that when this question comes, that's his first thought. Not how am I going to do it, but I've got to get with God on this one. We see the intimacy of prayer. Like I said, he didn't have to go off to a particular place. He didn't have to try and call God in and say, oh God, I need you now. Pay, pay attention over here because there's some. No. Prayer is intimate. Because God is intimate. He knows you. He is there with you. And he was there with Nehemiah in that moment already. So Nehemiah could take that moment 
to commune with God, to seek God. And we see the confidence of prayer. Starting with necessity and knowing that he needed to, Nehemiah goes before God because he is confident that God is doing something in this. That God is the one who started this whole thing in the first place. When he heard the news four months ago and it just broke him down and God started putting these ideas in his head. He's like, God, this is your thing, so I'm going to trust that you do this. And he prays with a confidence that he will be heard. And his prayers will be effective. Guys, our prayers don't have to be pretty to be effective. We don't have to say the right words to be heard by God. But we should also be beware of that pendulum, the, the one that swings all the way to the side of saying, we want the, the special these and thous to be in thou right place so that they can be heard by thine almighty God. And, and try and say them all just right to going all the way back to the other side where the only prayer we ever utter are the shallow, hey God, I need you, and that's it. And we don't have to be all the way over here to be heard by God, but we can't live all the way over here and expect God to be pleased with that. <coughs> Excuse me. Nehemiah is able in this moment, in that moment, to have a deep, rich prayer with God that did not last probably more than a second or two because he knew God in prayer already. And so in taking that deep breath and praying to God, he then lays out his plans to the king. He says, let me go back and fix up the walls. Fix up the, the city where my, my father's graves are. How long is it going to be? The king asks. He gives him a time frame. The king says, that sounds pretty good. Then Nehemiah goes on further. Write notes for me, if you would, to the governors on the other side of the river so that when I'm going through, they'll, they'll let me go through because the king says, this guy and all his people can pass. Let, let me uh, get notes to Asaph, the keeper of the lumber, so that he can give us the beams that we're going to need. We'll take some protection as we go. This didn't just come spur of the moment. This again comes from that four months of praying where God is walking him through these things and showing him what he needs. He even knows the name of the guy that he needs to talk to to get the lumber. He's able to give the king a time frame. It's going to be about this long because Nehemiah has been dependently praying to God while deliberately planning with God. It's not one or the other and we sometimes try and make it that way. We say we're, we're just going to pray. We're not going to do any planning. We're not going to do any preparation. We're just going to trust God for all of it. And trusting God is good, and maybe there's a time that He's calling you to do that. But I think more often He's calling you to trust Him, to pray to Him, and to use the brain that He has given us to plan as well. 
Of course, we can get to the other side and say, okay, we're going to pray. Good, now we've prayed. Now let's, let's plan this out. What are we going to do? And, and this kind of prayer is just, well, what we have to do because it's a church thing. And then we're, we're going we're gonna to plan this out and we're going to figure all this out. And we try and do the deliberate planning without the real prayer. Nehemiah spent months in that beautiful mix of, of just crying out to God and, and seeing God at work and planning so that when the king asked, he was able to give him all these different plans. And when the king heard it, he granted the request. Because, as Nehemiah says, the good hand of my God was upon me. Sometimes we've got to wait. Sometimes we have that vision. We see things happening. If we're looking around here, we can, we can just say, we, we see in the community around us, marriages are in trouble. And what do we do? We see people leaving the church because God just seems irrelevant. What do we do? We see a generation coming up that, that don't understand what they believe or why. What do we do? And these things, they, they should hurt. And God should use that and, and work in us. And sometimes when we want to see the answers now, God is saying, no, you've got to wait. And he's using that time for us to pray, for us to seek him, for us to put some things together through him and for him. And so I go back to ask again, what are those things in your life? What are those things that are keeping you up? What are those things that the injustices you see, the pain that you see that we say, God, something's got to be done. And are we praying for that? Are, we, are our hearts broken over that? To where we're praying, we're seeking God, and maybe we're seeing some different answers. And we can come together and we can share those. Because God invites us to come to him just as we are. But he never ever just leaves us there. He loves us too much for that. He's got more in store. So let's seek him in it. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy and grace that, that you... would condescend to take on flesh to live on this broken world in perfect obedience to the Father. I thank you for following through with the plan in perfection such that your death can provide us life. And I thank you that you are still at work 
Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence in our lives as Christians. I thank you for those times of holy discontent that you, you put something in our minds and hearts and you just won't let us rest from it because you want to do something with it. And so God, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we can start to make sense of some of the vision that you are putting before us, Lord. That we can step out in faith when you call us to step. Or that we can wait in prayerful patience as you call us to wait. God, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.